This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we are doing part two of our discussion uh, of Civil War by Other Means, uh, my recent book on the legacies of the Civil War for our politics and society today. And I am very fortunate that my uh, partner here, Mr. Zachary Suri, is going to interview me yet again on the book. We covered the first half of the book or so in our last discussion, uh, moving through the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and the challenges of bringing the Civil War battles to an end with continued conflict and resistance far from the battlefields within American society, within the remaking of American society after the war. Uh, we're going to continue that conversation today. Uh, Zachary, are you excited for our conversation? Yes. Even more important, are you excited for your birthday today? Yes, very much so. Zachary turns 18 today. Uh, it's wonderful. Happy birthday okay, to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, as always, we will start with the Birthday Boys poem. What is the title of your poem today, Zachary? The People Interrogate the Spirit of Democracy. I like that title. Uh, let's hear it. Oh, that the coaches halted in the lane to look us in the crying eyes that drain. Instead, they run and gallop past. They kiss the dog. They pay us last. Oh, that at dusk we saw the ancient stars and heard the loon which calls us from afar. The smokestack in its bellows holds no haunting songs, but empty holds. We fill the holes with thoughts of love, with glimpsings of a better way, with achings and a doodled dove. We'll find them all once more some blessed day. Oh, that indecent wounds would stay unhealed, but welts would fold and disappear. Do tell of all you've heard and said, then loose me, for I must to bed. And the spirit said, In ages when the darkness swells and silt leaves salt in all our wells, I've left a crust of bread for you. In the cold and snowing hours, do not fear to reach for it. And with your fingers, take a bit and eat among the flowers. In ages when the ether heaves and you can hear it in the eaves, I've left for you a song. When times held us for far too long in the depths of ancient runes, sing it like the woodland loons to the ghosts, the spectral throngs. But while I'm here, take heart and hope and do not perish like the pious pope with all too few, too little wrongs. So this poem, Zachary, is almost in the Shakespearean meter, isn't it? Yes. That's great. What is your poem about? Well, my poem is really about um, how impatient we can become, uh, maybe waiting for a democracy to renew itself, uh, but also how difficult it is uh, to confront our history uh, when there seems to be so many more immediate uh, problems, so much more immediate suffering around us, and yet how important it remains to keep experimenting and, yes. and remain committed to this experiment in democracy. Right, despite the distractions and the delusions and all of the uh, things that, that pu push us away from what really is the most important issue, right? Yeah, for sure. Great. Well, the floor is yours to uh, put me back in the hot seat and uh, 
uh, walk us through a civil war by other means, Zachary. Well, let's jump right in where we left off, I guess. So in your fifth chapter of Civil War by Other Means, which everyone should buy, you discuss the ways in which congressional Republicans um, attempted to reassert a much more radical reconstruction through the United States Army and through the first major civil rights legislation. In what way, then, did the political fight to shape Reconstruction change America's democratic institutions? So it's a great question, Zachary, because uh, there was indeed a fight over what Reconstruction would mean. Uh, one of the important points of the book is that when wars end, the questions, the dilemmas uh, only grow. Wars don't resolve many things. Wars actually move us to a different point in the debate. And so it was clear that uh, Northern Republicans had control of the now reunified and reunifying government. Uh, but there were still uh, a lot of questions over what that would look like. What role would former slaves play in American society? What role would former slave masters play? And the debates among Republicans really turned not just on inclusion in the South, but also inclusion in the North, where there were large uh, free pre-Civil War and now post-Civil War communities of former slaves, immigrants, uh, and others. The Civil Rights Act of 1866 which Andrew Johnson, as president, vetoed, and then his veto was overturned by Congress, created a basis for uh, natural-born citizenship and a basis for basic protection under the laws for all citizens. Uh, that became the foundation for the 14th Amendment, which, of course, is one of our most important amendments. Uh, these laws and others like that created a basis for more equal citizenship. The problem then became that of enforcement and Congress still relied primarily on the president to enforce the law. And you had with President Andrew Johnson, a president who was dead set on not enforcing the law. You also had members of Congress, even within the Republican Party, who did not want to go too far in the enforcement of these laws. So much of the debate after the Civil War in those early years was a debate about how far to go in inclusion and what role the federal government should play in the enforcement of those laws. Right. And, and Congress took increasing authority over uh, the United States military uh, as Andrew Johnson sought to stymie many of their efforts. Um, and you write in the book that, quote, the military gave African-Americans a chance, end quote, ensuring limited political and economic freedom for former slaves. To what extent then did the nation building mission of the U.S. Army, as outlined by Congress in the Reconstruction Act of 1867, succeed? Uh, it's a great question. So uh, what happened after the Civil War was the president um, of the United States stood in the way of enforcement. Uh, that's exactly the opposite of what the Constitution presumes. The Constitution presumes the president will enforce the laws. As a consequence, Congress had to find a way to enforce its laws by getting around the president. And what Congress did was constitutionally questionable, which was to try to take away the president's commander-in-chief powers, really, and work directly with the U.S. military, specifically uh, Ulysses Grant, who was the commander of American forces, the chief general of American Union forces. Congress created uh, five military districts uh, under Grant's authority with different generals like Sheridan and Sherman serving um, as the heads of those districts. The districts created military tribunals, in many cases, these districts not only tried in the military tribunals violent racist actors who were not tried in local courts, they removed elected officials 
They enforced voting laws. They accompanied and protected African-Americans and others who were voting. And they were doing this in response to congressional orders. Congress worked through the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, who then uh, passed on instructions to Ulysses Grant. During this entire process, President Andrew Johnson was trying to countermand those orders and even tried to fire uh, many of Grant's generals. He wanted to fire Sherman and Sheridan and others. And he also tried to fire eventually uh, Secretary of War Edward Stanton, which triggered the impeachment of the president. Uh, what's the key point here is that Congress for a number of years, from 1866 through 1868 or so, uh, moved to enforce the laws itself through the military. The military played a crucial role and African-Americans, former slaves, were central to that. Um, there were more than 100,000 who were in the Union Army. It had mixed results. Uh, the Army had the capability to do this and protected the election of many African-American officials and the participation of African-Americans in rewriting state constitutions. Uh, but the areas where the Army was not present were areas where it was very difficult to enforce congressional law. And as the size of the army reduced, as Congress at the same time reduced funding for the military, it was harder and harder to enforce these laws. You mentioned the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Uh, in your book, you devote a whole chapter to this uh, very unique political moment, which is often overlooked, or at least uh, in past decades, was overlooked by historians as a sort of political anomaly. Um, why do you see this moment as, as so important in understanding uh, this period after the Civil War? And do you maybe see the politics of 1868 uh, as parallel to our own in some way, a sort of example of the kind of politics that arises when we have two distinct visions of democratic participation? The impeachment of Andrew Johnson uh, is fascinating, uh, not simply because it does resonate particularly with the first impeachment of Donald Trump, uh, but because it's another moment in this period after Appomattox uh, where Americans, uh, especially American legislators, are reinventing what democracy means. There had never been uh, an impeachment of a president before. Andrew Johnson is impeached in 1868 uh, because uh, he has repeatedly undermined the law as instituted by Congress. He has repeatedly done that. And the triggering factor, as I mentioned before, was his effort to fire Edwin Stanton, who was the Secretary of War, who had worked with Congress to try to enforce the Congressional Acts of 1867 and others. Andrew Johnson uh, claims appropriately that as president, he has the right to nominate members of his cabinet and to remove them as he wishes. Secretary of War Stanton had been inherited from Lincoln. And so he is claiming that he has the right to remove him. Congress does not want him to remove Stanton because Congress wants to use Stanton to continue to enforce the laws of 1866 and 67, the Civil Rights Act, the constitutional amendments, etc. And so uh, we have this uh, conflict over who has authority over the enforcement of the law. Uh, when Johnson removes Stanton, Stanton initially refuses to leave, claiming Johnson's removal of him is illegal. And Charles Sumner and other uh, members of the Senate and the House push for impeachment. The House does indeed impeach Andrew Johnson overwhelmingly, uh, which is to say they vote to uh, create a trial for him in the Senate, which had never occurred before. I have a drawing of this in the book. It's fascinating. It is the first time that members of the House, as the managers of the impeachment, as the prosecutors in essence, 
uh, are in the Senate making their case. The Senate votes by one vote short of two-thirds to convict Andrew Johnson. Uh, it is a fascinating debate. Many senators want to remove Johnson, but many senators at the same time don't want the president pro tempore of the Senate, Benjamin Wade, who's a radical Republican to become president because he's more radical than many of the other Republicans. And senators, even uh, very stalwart Republicans, are concerned about removing a president and violating what they believe is the will of the people who elected the Lincoln-Johnson uh, ticket in 1864. And so there are counter pressures against the conviction of the president. In the end, Johnson is not convicted because at the last minute, he is able to bribe, it is a bribe that saves his presidency, bribe Senator Edmund Ross, who is from Kansas who would have been the deciding vote. He would have taken the numbers above to two thirds for the conviction of the president. Uh, but he's bribed when the president offers him uh, the custom seat in New Orleans for one of his closest supporters and funders. The custom seat in New Orleans or the custom seat in New York that Chester Arthur holds is a source of great graft and corruption as you can take bribes for traders and others coming through New Orleans. Uh, this is all documented in my book Johnson's presidency therefore is saved and he remains president through the end of 1868, the beginning of 1869, because there is one vote short of the two thirds necessary to convict him. Quick point on this. Uh, I think this is evidence that our impeachment and conviction system does not work. No one, I think, would want presidents being removed willy nilly by Congress. But in the case of Andrew Johnson, we have a president who has clearly violated his congressional duty to enforce the law is actually hindering the law as passed by Congress uh, and committing various other crimes. Uh, it, it seems to me there should be a method for removal and the conviction uh, and impeachment method clearly doesn't work. We've had now in our country uh, five impeachments and none of them uh, have really even come close to removing a president. You, you talk in, in your book about the many ways that uh, Johnson used uh, the increased executive authority that Lincoln asserted during the war, the sort of war powers uh, that Lincoln uh, took on, often without congressional or, or constitutional backing. You describe how Johnson used those same powers to stymie Reconstruction and Lincoln's vision of, of how this would go. Uh, does the fact that our political institutions and the presidency chief among them serve as both protectors of and hindrances to democracy maybe speak to something fundamentally broken in our institutions, perhaps the inability to maintain political stability and guarantee the democratic rights of all citizens at the same time? I think it's a fundamental question. It's one I also asked in my prior book, The Impossible Presidency. The founders presumed that the president would be a unifying figure. They presumed the president would enforce the law, that the president would see that as his duty. Um, and the founders assumed that the president's powers would be pretty minimal, actually, that a lot of the enforcement would happen at the state level. Um, and so that's an argument for a weaker presidency. As the presidency has grown stronger through the Civil War in particular, which creates this monumentally strong president that Lincoln is, is operating as, and Johnson inherits, as you said so well in your question, Zachary. Uh, but thereafter, as the presidency grows in many other ways, as the executive branch grows and as an, as an administrative uh, agency or a set of administrative agencies, uh, presidents are in a position not really just to enforce the law. They're now in a position to reshape the law. And they're in a position 
to distort it, and in some cases to stymie the, the law. And there were, of course, controversies between Andrew Jackson and Congress in the 1830s, uh, but Jackson was pretty much standing in the way of Congress passing things. He was using his veto pen and using his influence in Congress for those reasons. In general, the laws were enforced. Uh, what the Johnson presidency shows is that there is a very anti-democratic element of presidential power, and that anti-democratic element can destabilize our democracy. It certainly did during Andrew Johnson's presidency. And what about President Grant, uh, who was elected in 1868 uh, and became president in 1869 uh, as Johnson uh, never elected president, uh, left uh, the office. And you write in your book that, quote, although the Republican Party won the military battles of the Civil War, the fight over the meaning of America continued. How did President Grant, uh, who we often see as a sort of naive political outsider, and then certainly as one who presided over a very uh, infamously corrupt administration, how did he seek to combat this white supremacism in the South? And also, uh, should we understand his efforts as a sort of counter to the Confederate narrative, which eventually, arguably, won, quote, the fight over the meaning of America. So let me start where your excellent question ended, Zachary. Uh, the narrative of Grant that I learned when I was in high school and that many learned until about 10 years ago was that he was bumbling, corrupt, uh, incompetent, and drunk. And that was a narrative written by Southerners, <laughs> not by Northerners. It, it played to certain also Northern prejudices about this man. Uh, but the truth is, uh, and I show this in the book in great detail, and it's a, a really a new interpretation that various historians have been working on, and not just me for the last decade or more. Uh, Grant actually does a lot of things right after the Civil War. Uh, first of all, he has a change in perspective. It's very rare that you find someone who's deep within his career, in some ways near the end of his career, who has a fundamental change of views. Uh, most people don't change their mind that way. Uh, we see this in his papers. Grant went into the Civil War believing a lot of the racist rhetoric about African-Americans and about immigrants and others. He comes out of the war transformed in his view of African-Americans because he has seen their valiant, courageous service during the war. Again, more than 100,000 former slaves and other African-Americans serving in the Union Army and serving uh, with great courage uh, through the war and, and, and thereafter. Um, and Grant, when he becomes president, uh, he is elected in probably one of the fairest and uh, most widely participatory elections in American history for another uh, half century, at least, the election of 1868. So he has a large African-American constituency. Uh, African-Americans who can and do vote in the South, they vote overwhelmingly for the Republican Party and for Ulysses Grant. He's one of their, their heroes. Grant tries to use his presidency to enforce the laws. Uh, he does a number of things that have enduring consequence. He creates the Justice Department. There was no Justice Department before Grant's presidency. We had an attorney general, but no Justice Department. He creates the Justice Department to enforce the law in the South. Um, he doesn't have an FBI yet. There's no federal police as such, but he tries to use the military and the Justice Department for that purpose. He encourages Congress to pass acts that are directed at the prosecution and uh, prevention of violence against African-Americans and others in the South. This is the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act, which uh, has legislation that's still in the books today. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan Act and other efforts by the president undermine and in some ways break the back 
of these various paramilitary militias in the South that are attacking African-Americans and others. Grant also tries to create funding mechanisms for the creation of safe, prosperous African-American communities and others uh, throughout the country. He fails in many of the things he tries. He succeeds, certainly, in creating a justice department. He succeeds in um, breaking the back of the Ku Klux Klan initially. But he doesn't convince his own party of the long-term commitment that is needed in the South to enforce the law and to build institutions for all citizens in the South. He doesn't convince them in part because many Northern Republicans want to invest their money and resources in the West where there's more money to be made. They're fed up with the South. They want to move on. It's a common phenomenon in American history. We win a war and we want to just move on and not deal with all the work that's required at the end of the war. But also it should be said, Grant is not a great politician. Grant is not someone like a Lyndon Johnson who's good at manipulating, encouraging, persuading, and coercing people within his own party. So even though he has full control of Congress, in many ways, he's fighting against his own party throughout most of his presidency. That's not a moral failing. It's often a failure of judgment, but really what it is is uh, fundamentally the recognition he himself comes to that he's just not a politician. Uh, Even though he still wants to remain president, he actually wanted to run a third time. Um, His skills are not political persuasion. And as a president, even with your own party in power, you need to be able to persuade people. Yeah. Let's talk about the politicians, though, because you have a very interesting narrative of the election of 1876, uh, the infamously contested election, uh, which results eventually in the military uh, withdrawing from the South prematurely. Uh, and, 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 And you discuss how this election led to a conciliatory politics uh in uh, 1877 with the um, eventual accession of President uh, Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, is this, as you call it, caretaker politics uh, to blame for the failure of Reconstruction? Is this sort of the point of no return where, where it all goes south? I, I think, Zachary, in some ways, our election system is to blame for the failure of Reconstruction, not entirely, but in part. To this day, we don't know who won the 1876 election. We never will because our election system through the Electoral College is so messed up and it's so evident in 1876. Uh, Samuel Tilden, the governor of New York, who's a Democrat, running for president against Rutherford B. Hayes, very highly regarded, beloved governor of Ohio. So the governor of Ohio is a Republican governor of New York, Democrat running against one another. Tilden, the governor of New York, wins more votes total. But through the Electoral College, it looks like Hayes might be close enough to have one more electoral vote. As everyone knows, the Electoral College is a winner-take-all system. So you can be close in a lot of states, have a lot of votes, and get zero electoral votes. And you can win a lot of states by small margins and get all those electoral votes. The three states that are disputed, where it is so close, it's very hard to know who actually had more votes, are South Carolina, Louisiana, and of course, the state that is always at the center of our electoral controversy, Zachary, Florida, Florida, right? So in those three states, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Florida, it is very, very close, uh, the Republican and Democratic votes, and there are legitimately disputed votes. There are cases where it appears someone voted two, three times. Uh, There are cases where the ballot can't be read. There are cases where uh, a ballot seems to be uh, faked. There are all kinds of things. So let's be clear. There is no fraud in our elections today. 
there was a lot of fraud in elections in 1876. And voter suppression. And voter suppression, of course. So in those three states, it's hard to know, depending how you count the ballots, which you include, whether Hayes or Tilden won. Each of those three states had a Republican governor at the time of the election. The Republican governors in each of those three states certified the electoral votes for Rutherford B. Hayes. So Hayes had one more electoral vote, and it looked like he would become president. The Democrats refused to accept that. And that actually leads to the creation of the Electoral Count Act, by the way, of 1887, which was to try to institutionalize certification of elections and worked for about a century or so. Um, but here's the thing. The Democrats refused to accept presidency of Rutherford B. Hayes. They refused to certify it uh, in the Senate. And so uh, this goes to uh, a really period of, of dispute and uncertainty president's supposed to be inaugurated in March. We get to January, February. We still don't have a president uh, from November to January, February. An electoral commission is created of 15 individuals, including five Supreme Court justices, eight Republicans, seven Democrats on the commission. The eight Republicans say Hayes won. The seven Democrats say Tilden won. You see, partisanship is nothing new, Zachary. So what happens then? Uh, negotiations behind the scenes, uh, including John Sherman, William Tecumseh Sherman's brother, who's a senator from uh, Republican senator from Ohio and close friend of Rutherford B. Hayes. These negotiations produce an agreement wherein the Democrats will accept Hayes as president in return for Hayes's commitment to stop the enforcement of many of the Reconstruction Acts, and in particular, to remove the last Union forces, the last Army forces from occupation in the South. People also forget uh, Hayes provides promises of money to the South for infrastructure. These states' rights, white citizens who want um, the government out, they actually still want government money. So everyone wants government money. It's just a question of who's the money for. Is it for the former slaves or is it for the white uh, elites in the South? Uh, this process of getting a president selected basically empower Southerners to hold the country hostage. And it debilitates Hayes from actually doing the work he wanted to do as president, which was to enforce the Reconstruction Acts. He can't do that. Um, and he can't do that because he had to make these agreements uh, in order to get into the office. And so as president, Hayes is a very good man. I talk about it in the book. No one remembers much about Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, he tries to move on. Uh, he tries to bring the country together but he can't address the core issues because the core issues of resistance to enforcement of the law in the South are issues that he's promised not to address. And his presidency hinges upon um, basically accepting lawbreaking uh, in the South. So our election system actually undermined the very role the president should have played at that moment. So, so do you think then that maybe the answer for our, our politics today, which I think many people uh, rightly or wrongly would see as parallel to this politics in some way, shape or form, do you think it requires maybe a more serious political reform, uh, something that goes beyond simply an election, um, uh, and maybe the expansion of the Supreme Court, the uh, a shift in the way that we conduct elections, or possibly new constitutional amendments along the lines of the 13th, 14th, and 15th? Uh, is that how we renew our institutions, maybe? Hell yes. <laughs> uh, absolutely. My, my point in my book, my fundamental point, is that our institutions develop in the years after Appomattox, in the years and decades after Appomattox, in ways that sometimes embrace democracy, embrace the end of slavery, but quite often um, push against 
basic democratic practices and empower forms of behavior, including paramilitary violence and resistance to the law, that undermine democracy. In all periods, we don't see those cancers, those distortions at work because we often have leaders who don't weaponize them, who don't use them. But when they're there sitting in our institutions and when the circumstances create controversy, these distortions and cancers placed in our institutions after Appomattox, they actually undermine the functioning of our democracy. They leave us weakened. They leave us far more divided than we have to be. And that's what we see with the process of our elections since then. That's what we see with gerrymander. That's what we see with uh, inadequate enforcement of uh, anti-violence and anti-extremism in our society. That's what we see with uh, all kinds of encouragement for uh, continued uh, racism, continued um, non-inclusion within our society in many ways. And most fundamentally, it's what we see with a system that elects and creates representation that doesn't actually represent all people. So I'm a believer that our institutions have many good things they do, protections for free speech that make it possible for, have these, for us to have these conversations. But our, our institutions since 1865 have also embedded very anti-democratic, dangerous practices. We need to reform those institutions. We need new constitutional amendments and we need fundamental institutional reform. And I believe that a younger generation can make that happen. We can start by creating a, an amendment to protect everyone's right to vote, to make it harder for states and other communities to repress the vote as they do repeatedly. We can do this by creating laws that limit gerrymandering. All of these are steps we can take that are fundamental, they're realistic, and they're essential for what I would say would be truly post-Civil War politics. Otherwise, we're stuck in, in Civil War institutions and Civil War politics. I, I know that one of the biggest influences for you in writing this book was actually a conversation we had with uh, Susan Nyman. Uh, many I think uh, years ago at this point. Uh, and her book, of course. Uh, and her, her book, uh, Learning from the Germans. Uh, and you write in your concluding chapter that, quote, learning history is really about hearts and minds, teaching ourselves to look beyond appearances and probe deeply into who we are as a society. And you conclude, we have lots of good work to do. Is this then the Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, or working off of the past that the Germans have embraced? What role should, should history play than uh, in this transformation? Jawohl, great question, Zachary. And, and notice how I brought together Susan Nyman and John Lewis with the good work and good trouble we have uh, to make two people who both of us revere, of course. Uh, German society since World War II, and particularly since the 1960s, has struggled to deal with the legacy of the Holocaust. And they've done it imperfectly, but they have made a concerted effort since the 1960s to educate themselves, to understand, not, not necessarily to condemn themselves, certainly not, but to build a thriving, prosperous, strong democracy that recognizes and has self-consciously learned from its shortcomings, its very grave shortcomings, its genocidal shortcomings. Uh, the United States is in, of course, a different situation, and our history is different. Uh, but we do have a deep history, not just of slavery, but of anti-democratic, violent, uh, white supremacist behavior in our past. And it is still in our institutions. 
it is still uh, residing in many elements of our society. That past, even though most people don't consciously embrace it, that past is there because our institutions were built, the whole point of my book, by people who embrace those ideas. So the institutions still reflect them. It's sort of like in your family, you might have family practices that were started by your grandparents and your grandparents aren't around, but those family practices reflect some of their attitudes and that might be good or bad. You have to revisit that. You have to revisit that. We no longer, at least in our reform synagogues, seat women and men separately. That was a tradition we used to have inherited from the past. We changed that, not because we were disrespectful of the past, but because we had worked through that history. We understood what it meant and what it did, and we wanted to make appropriate change. It is crucial for a society to examine itself, examine where it has come from, even the uncomfortable experiences, because those help us to understand what we're doing today and to then adjust what we're doing today to be better in line with our own values. When you don't teach the uncomfortable past, you prevent yourself from understanding how it influences you today, and you prevent yourself from changing it. Ignorance of the past, reinforces the injustices of the past. I love our country. I know you do too, Zachary. I believe our country it has been an important and great democracy in the world, and it can only remain so. It can only be better if we examine both our accomplishments and our shortcomings, and we self-consciously try to take that knowledge into the adjustment and reform of our institutions today. That's what Susan Nyman is talking about. The Germans have done to some extent. They're such a different society from what they were even in the late 1940s and 1950s. We have to do some of that work today. That's really what my book calls for. And I know, Zachary, this is something you've thought a lot about. So uh, in our close, I wanna turn it back to you. How do you think about Vergangenheit's Aufarbeit and working through history in our country today? How do you think of this particularly as now an 18-year-old uh, trying to chart a future for yourself and for our country? Well, I think it offers a model because it's not a sort of, Vergangenheit's Alpha Beitung is not is not a story of sort of, of self-loathing or 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 um a sort of like collective guilt. Uh even if that it should be morally maybe that is um required, uh for to renew political institutions, one must not uh learn to hate those institutions. One need one need recognize solely the ways in which history shapes those institutions and work consciously to undo that uh in the places where it it, it holds them back. And uh, this renewal doesn't have to be um, something uh, scary. Uh, and I think that uh, a sort of collective recognition of our own history can, in some ways, be unifying in, in the long run. And can you just give us a quick example of that, of how you think about that happening in our society today? Well, I think that, uh, for me at least, I think that the way in which we teach history now, or at least the ways in which we're beginning to teach history to young people, um, as... Um, I, I would say a sort of shift in perspective uh, when it comes to the teaching of history has begun uh, slowly across the country, or at least in certain pockets. I think that offers a way forward because if we if we have a society that understands its history from many different perspectives, uh, then we have a society that's able to look at its institutions critically and favorably at the same time. I like that, and I and I hope my book Civil War by Other Means is a little part of that story that it contributes in some ways. Uh, and I hope uh, all of our listeners will have a chance to read my book. 
as well as to hear you, Zachary, as Austin youth poet. Uh, I know you have a number of events coming up, and I hope people will look on the website for Austin youth poet and find your event so they can hear you not only on the podcast, but hear you in person as well. Congratulations on your 18th birthday. Thank you. And great questions today. Thank you, Zachary. Thank you to my publisher. Uh, And most of all, uh, thank you to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.